I'm John Bronston, and I'm a pianist and musical director. From Civic Spark Media and the Western Wayne News in Wayne County, Indiana, I'm Kate Jetmore. As a native of Richmond, Indiana, I'm excited to be sitting down with some of our neighbors and listening to the stories that define our community. My guest today is John Bronston, who was recently music director of Outer Critics Circle Award winner The Harder They Come at the Public Theater. Previously, he was the associate music director of A Man of No Importance at Classic Stage Company, was a sub-keyboard player and music direction fellow at Tina on Broadway, and was the musical director for the national tour of Hair. He's the creator, music director, and producer of the series Creating in Color, dedicated to producing concerts of classic musicals with predominantly black casts. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. I know. And just before we pushed record, we were talking about how we're both natives of Richmond, both moved to New York, but somehow never overlapped until we finally met about a year and a half ago in New York. Yes, through your friend Tom Sesma. Like, and I just was so excited to finally get to meet you. And he was like, Kate's going to be around. Can it's like, it's like, I would love to introduce you all. And I was like, yes, please. Yes, so we finally met at the stage door of A Man of No Importance at the classic stage. And I'll just take the opportunity to say... I was there because Tom was in the show and he got me tickets to the show. My son and my nephew were also there and we loved it. It was a a really beautiful piece. I had such an incredible experience learning that show, working on that show was just really, it was really magical. And like I learned so much doing it. Um, I'm so thankful I got to do it. Well, I want to hear more about your time in New York and the career that you forged in New York, but let's start with Richmond if you don't mind. So as I said, we're both natives of Richmond, both have moved away from Richmond, but still maintain really strong ties to our hometown. I'd love to know how you manage that and what your relationship to Richmond means to you. Well, I mean, I mean, I grew up in Richmond and my whole family is, I mean, a lot of my family is still based in Indiana and Ohio. My parents are still in Richmond um, and I got involved in the theater because I was doing school shows and my mother said, let's get you involved at Richmond Civic Theater and with Junior Players at the time, which was their their youth theater at that time. And I mean, she got so involved that she got on the board at Richmond Civic Theater and she was never interested in theater at all, but she was just like, well, if John's gonna do this, I'm gonna dive in with him. Um, And so I'm so excited that I get to go home, you know, at least once or twice a year. Um, I get to spend time and meet, uh, see people from, you know, that I grew up with from high school. Um, I also get to see shows regularly. I get to, whenever possible, I go to see shows at Richmond Civic. Um, and I also, um, I did a master class at Richmond Civic uh, this past fall, which was really cool with young people, young artists, that they were trying to figure out like what is possible for them. And it's one of the things that like is really exciting to me because I wasn't sure what was possible when I was in Richmond. I mean. I had an idea of it because of you, <laughs> because people were always like, Kate Jetmore is someone that like found a way to have a professional career in the arts, and she's from Richmond, and so if somebody can do it, then somebody else can do it too. Oh, wow. Wow, thank you for sharing that with me. And I'd love to hear more about that masterclass. I love that 
that RCT offered the masterclass, that you were the one who gave it. So talk us through a little bit what that looked like. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really a, a lovely afternoon. It was like right before Thanksgiving. And um, I had reached out, uh, my friend uh, David Cobine, D.C., uh, uh, he was my high school English teacher. You know, it's weird that we're... Mine too. <laughs> that we're, he and I are friends <laughs> now. It's funny. Um, and he had reached out. I was like, would you be interested? And I was like, oh, absolutely. I was like, I'll be home extra time for Thanksgiving so I have more time. Um, and I had people come in and sing. And it's different because most of the work that I do in New York is with pop rock musicals. And I know that, like, mm-hmm. Richmond Civic... And, like, community theaters in general, like, they they mostly do more traditional musicals than I work on. And so I was like, it would be really great if they could come in and sing some pop music for me. In addition to just singing musical theater things, I would love for them, I'd love to give them some feedback about ways that you can do that as an actor and as a musical theater performer that makes that, that stuff actually live and make sense. Um, And it was wild because I had performers from the age of 30 all the way down to 12 come in Mm. and sing for me and you know just and we gave them adjustments and it was I didn't know I was going to have people as young as 12 in the room and it was really exciting and they were all really thrilled to like try new things it was so unfamiliar Mm -hmm. to all of them um and I had just a a blast working with them that's wonderful what do you think they learned about themselves what do you think they took away from that experience well I think well, several of them said that they had never sung some of that material, like, any place. They're like, oh, I sing along with this, you know, in the car or, like, at home if it's on TV or something. And they had never thought about how to make that material specific to them. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that young performers, especially, you learn things from hearing recordings. Yeah. And so they were all exploring, like, oh, I don't have to be the recording. I can be individually myself. And I can also express something that means something to me and not just because it means something to Billie Eilish. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, it's always weird. I used to, you know, I, w- I came up not singing Billie Eilish because she didn't exist then. But I came up singing Elton John songs. And I think, oh, those songs have such weird lyrics that sometimes I never know what they mean to him. So I have to kind of make it up for what they mean to me yeah. and sing that. And it's just something that you learn to do by doing. Right. And that kind of is the definition of art, what you just said, you know, how does this apply to me? And how does it make sense in the context of my own life and my own experience? Yeah. I mean, nobody is lives the life of Fantine and Les Mis, but you have to like act it and figure it out for yourself and what that means for you. Right. Right. Well, you mentioned RCT, which always played you know, an incredibly important role in my life as well and in the life of my family in Richmond. What other organizations or experiences really made an impact on you when you were a young person in Richmond? Well, I mean, Whitewater Opera, like, was one of those things that was... I didn't even realize how formulative it had been for me, like, being able to see opera in my own hometown and the Richmond Symphony. But um, Charles Piano from Whitewater Opera was my piano teacher, his piano teacher. And so, you know, she said that when I was very young that he's heard me play and was like, oh, that kid really has something. Like, he really should keep doing this. And she told me that just like a couple of years ago, and it moved me so much because I had no clue that he ever heard me. And who who was it that told you Wendy that? Oberly. Oh, okay, um, okay. And like, you know, she still teaches piano there, and my voice teacher still teaches piano, teaches voice in Richmond, Marjorie Johnstone. Mm-hmm. I actually went to Marjorie for a voice lesson two or three years ago 
um, when I was up for a really legit musical theater thing, and I was like, I just want to have a tune-up and see, I've been singing all this rock music for 20 years. I was like, I would love to just have a, just a session just to see where I'm at. And it was so useful. Um, mm. So both of, both of them were so formulative. And I was on tour with Hair. Both of them came out to see me on tour conducting that show, um, which was really special to me. Um, I also, I worked so much with what's now stage one players, with junior players, um, with the Richmond Symphony Orchestra, one of the first things that kind of catapulted me towards college was that I did the Richmond Symphony Orchestra Young, Young Artist Competition, and I was third place in that, I placed in that, and then because of that I entered the Indiana Youth Opera Competition, and I was a finalist for that also. It really made me certain that I was like on the right kind of path, <laughs> that I was like mm -hmm. learning something useful and that I was, um, that maybe there was gonna be a space for me somewhere in the performing arts. I wasn't sure doing exactly what, but I knew there was definitely going to be some kind of space. So that was as a singer, not as a pianist? Yes. All those were, I was doing all those as a singer and not as a pianist. Um, uh-huh. I, I love playing the piano. Um, it wasn't my first instrument. My first instrument was the trombone. Uh-huh. Um, but I, uh, I played piano on the side. Um, I kind of, it something that kind of snuck in. I was in maybe my sophomore year in high school and I played piano in the pit at Richmond Civic Theater for Annie Get Your Gun. Uh -huh. And it was the first time being in a pit. Um, and I just, I had such a good time doing it that I always was doing that in addition to performing when I was still performing. Okay, okay. So it sounds like not only was Richmond there for you in many ways as a child, but it really continues to be. And even as a working professional in New York City, in some ways, you're you're seeking out. The, you continue to seek out those resources yeah. in Richmond. I even um, when I started like looking, I started composing more. I sent some of my compositions. So Richmond Civic Theater, when they did Glass Menagerie last, um, I wrote the incidental score for it. Um, wow! I wrote incidental scores for some of the things at Richmond Shakespeare Festival when they started off. Um, so it's been something that's continued to be a part of my artistic life. Mm -hmm. I totally get that. I totally get that. And I hope that our listeners hear that too, because I think sometimes, you know, the same way that you and I were thinking, I want to get out, who else got out, you know, who else moved away? Sometimes that can be a bit of a complex for people in Richmond, you know, like people want to leave here, they don't want to come here. And I think these conversations are so important for reminding people, you know, I go back every summer, and my 16 year old son has spent every summer of his life except for the pandemic summer in Richmond, Indiana, that's how important it is to me. And that's what a special place it is. Oh, no, I, I that's beautiful. I think that is so true. I also never had any issue about going back to Richmond because I moved to New York the first time right after college and I kind of flamed out. It was a disaster. And I came back to Richmond and I was there for two and a half years. Um, and I started doing things with Earlham College and it was my first guest artist contract uh -huh. was at Earlham College. And then they asked me after I performed in a show there, I ended up staying and I choreographed a show and then I directed a show. And, um, and because of that, it kind of was like, oh, you're, you can fly again, go back to New York. And then I've been here now 21 years wow. after that, that brief <laughs> interlude away. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, looking at it from a different perspective, I'm curious if there are any resources that you wish you had had 
when you were a kid in Richmond. Maybe you see them now and you think, oh, I wish they'd been around when I was a kid. Or maybe you still don't see them and you think, you know what would be a good idea? You know what would really work for young people? I mean, I think that there are some really great, exciting resources. I wish that one of the things I always wish in every community and arts that I go into is that the different organizations worked together more. Mm -hmm. You know, that like there are these, um, you know, there's like, orchestral organizations and there's choral organizations and there's dramatic organizations and there's dance studios but there's very little that happens where people get to work amongst other disciplines Mm -hmm. and one of the things that really helped me was that I mean I purposely just sought out ways I took I was I had a paper route and I used the money for my paper route to take dance classes Um, because my parents were like we're already paying for your piano and voice lessons we cannot afford anymore and so I was taking at the old Fred Astaire dance studio for a while and then I was taking um, you know at uh, one of the other local dance studios that existed back in the 90s in Richmond Uh but I mean it would be great if you know organizations could figure out ways to work together and build things so that people can explore multiple types of the arts at once yeah, yeah. And it, it it's interesting because it sort of sounds like you're describing, I mean, you really are a Renaissance man in a lot of ways. You know, you're like trombone, voice, piano, music direction. I conducted the orchestra for the, for the, um, for hair on tour when it was on the road. And it sounds like that all came together for you as part of a very personal exploration. And what you're saying is that, you know, that sort of experience and that sort of exploration could be supported in a way that it's not currently. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, like, I still, I take class all the time. And, like, last year I went back, I started taking dance class again. And, like, um, I don't know any music directors in New York that take dance classes. Um, and it's it's not because I have any desire to get on a stage again. But, like, A, it the reason I still sing regularly is because I want to be able to talk to singers from the level that from the place that they are at mm-hmm. and i love being able to move and so like i took class with uh chrissy whitehead who was an original cast member of the chorus line revival and i met her i did a promotional event for them at tavern on the green with marvin hamlish when they were running mm-hmm. and i kept in touch all these years and she started offering a class for like older dancers and people that weren't actively dancing all the time and i was like oh i'm gonna be there oh I love i'm gonna it. take your class yeah, I mean, it's all connected. I Let's talk about New York because, you know, you've peppered our conversation with some some of your credits and some of your memories. And, you know, we talked about meeting at the stage door of A Man of No Importance. Um, I know you performed on Broadway when you were with Tina the Musical. Uh, you know, I just love to cast a wide net and say, what kind of memories can you share? What kind of stories can you share about these 21 years that you've been in New York? Um, well, it's so wild. My first time like working with the Broadway show was with the original company of Wicked. So like the very first year of Wicked, I was working at an educational theater in New York and I was there. Um, I was music directing and then I was also directing and choreographing for them sometimes. Um, and um, at the end of the year, we were doing their big benefit and it was with Wicked, and they didn't send Eden, it was, they sent a Glinda and an Alphaba, but since it was the first year, Eden, I mean, Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth were too busy. They are like, we can't come and do this benefit, so they'll send the covers. So it was Eden Espinosa, and it was Laura Bell Bundy, and the kids that were in City Lights, and they did, like, 
Defying Gravity, and one short day they did like four or five numbers, and they did For Good uh, with the kids, and I was teaching it to the kids and helping them do that. And we did those benefits for several years. Like, I think I did five years worth of them with various Broadway casts. But those were places, you know, where I was performing with Broadway performers, but not on Broadway. It took me 20 years to make my Broadway debut on Broadway. Um, you know, like, I played rehearsals, I played auditions, but those aren't technically performing on Broadway. It's not the same thing. Um, so, you know, two years ago, I made my Broadway debut mm -hmm. in the or, or onstage orchestra for Tina the Musical, and I had a job working for them. I was the Music Direction Fellow, which was a new position, mm -hmm. a fellowship position that they had created after the pandemic, um, where I was helping to track changes in the scores. I was, you know, uh, following rehearsals and like filing reports and helping get the scores ready for the tour. I had a lot of various jobs, but that didn't mean that I had to actually play anything. Um, so on top of the fellowship, they were like, oh, we trust you as a musician. You'll be now the rehearsal pianist. And then also we need you to fill in in the onstage band. And this is the, your first date. And I kind of assumed, okay, well, that, that's a really nice gesture. Thank you. Um, I'm going to get to make my debut, and that's going to be the end of that. Um, but then I played regularly. I played it four or five times before we closed. And um, it was, I played it with all of the Tinas that existed on Broadway, which is wild, because there were four of them. Um, mm. You know, my parents got to fly out from Indiana mm -hmm. uh, and see me. Uh, I had, I think, like 35 people in the house at my first oh, wow. Broadway performance. Like wow. I had to do a group sales <laughs> to get that many tickets. <laughs> wow. And what did that mean to you, John? I mean, you obviously had some Im really impressive credits under your belt by the time Tina on Broadway came along and playing in the pit on Broadway. What what did that mean to you? I mean, did it mean anything to you? Oh, I mean, it was... It was insane to me. Like, um, I don't think I've ever been as nervous as I was doing that the first time in my entire life. I mean, the music isn't wildly difficult for a piano player, but it's pretty exposed. There are a lot of things mm -hmm. that's like, you know, like the beginning of River Deep Mountain High. So, da -da -da -dum, ba -da 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 -dum. That's just the piano player. And I was like, oh, you messed that up. It's real obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and on top of that, the whole last portion of the show is a concert where you're fully on stage. And they take your score away from you. Like, right before they come and reveal you, they take everyone's music stands away. And they took my stand away, and I was like, oh, God, I don't remember any of these songs. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And it's like the mm -hmm. next 20 minutes of the show, and they, you know, you're standing there. You can see the whole audience. T I'm right next to the stairs that Tina runs up and down, dancing up and down the stairs. And I'm like, oh, I'm... I'm going to just like crash and burn. I was like, and I didn't, you know, I felt like I kind of had a out of body experience. Um, but I felt so, it was so wild at the end of the curtain call. Um, Kayla Davion was my first Tina and she turned and she like gave me the thumbs up at, at, like towards the end of the curtain call, like directly to me. And she was like, and I was like, Oh my God, that's so like, you know, she's busy. She's really busy at that moment. She's running around these yeah. five inch heels, singing her face off, kicking her, you know, like just doing, all, I was like, she took a moment out to acknowledge me personally. And I was like, that's wild. Wow. Yeah. That, that energy that you're describing, that the, the energy that zings around among the people who are on stage together or in the pit together, or even, you know, between the stage and the pit, depending on where the musicians are. I think that's why it's so exciting to go to the theater as an audience member, because you're, you're witnessing that energy. The energy that you got from her when she gave you that thumbs up, 
there were hundreds of people or thousands of people, I don't know the house, witnessing that exchange of energy. And that is something that is so powerful. You know, there are thousands of people. Every All the shows I have done now in New York, Broadway and off-Broadway have been where I've been visible in some kind of fashion, mm. which is also like its own set of terrors. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we met at uh, Man of No Importance, where I was not constantly conducting it, but, you know, it was very much so the height of COVID. Um, and I ended up having to conduct that show immediately after the opening. And mm. it's a show, that show was one where there are actor musicians. So the actors are constantly like, they would be coming up into our space above the stage. And, you know, Jim Parsons is the lead. And he's like reading, he's, you know, reciting a monologue right next to me while I'm trying to play a heart patch and conduct the flu- the flautist. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just a wild situation. I was like, oh, I'm, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You're just there. Um, yeah, for better or for worse, right? You know, it, it was weird. I did... When I was at the public with uh, with Harder They Come, um, I had three costume changes in that show, uh, which was, I was like, this is really complicated. I'm playing a lot of keys and conducting. And I'm constantly like trying to put on a shirt and change pants and like, you know, and like yeah. they originally had more costume changes. And I was like, this is not going to be physically possible. It was only... Did you, did you have a dresser? Was there someone who was oh, helping no. you do that? No, oh. no. So it was like, basically just like, oh, put two shirts on and rip this one off and then make this right. other change at intermission so that you were, that was, but there were originally like six times I was supposed to be on stage and I was supposed to be in a different costume every time. And I was like, this is not actually going to be possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that must have been quite a rehearsal process to figure out how many there would be. Oh, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> John, what you've shared up to now in our conversation has everything to do with sort of other people's productions and how you fit into them and what role you can play to support support someone else's vision. But in our intro, we mentioned Creating in Color, which is a series that you yourself created Um, As we said, it's concert versions of classic musicals featuring predominantly Black casts. I'd love to hear about some of the shows you've produced up to now and what's coming up in 2024. Yeah, so um, it came out of, the musical series came out of, I was just, I realized that I see a lot of concerts and like there's all these spaces in New York to do uh, concerts and cabarets of shows, but often they are... um, they're like classic musicals from the past that people have seen before, or if they are, if there are a lot of people of color in the cast, it's something that's normally traditionally done with people of color. It's, you know, oh, they're going to do, just like at Encores this season, they're going to do Jelly's Last Jam. Of course, it's going to be predominantly artists of color in that show. Um, But I was like, there are so many musicals that people of color never get to lay their hands on. And, And it's funny, like, there used to be not there used to be more opportunities to do that sort of thing. Like in the '60s, Pearl Bailey went into Hello Dolly, and there was a full black company of that show. In the '70s, there was a full black company of I Love My Wife, a Cy Coleman show. Um, mm. It was there was in the '70s there was a full black version of Guys and Dolls that was done on Broadway, um, mm. and I was like, it's interesting that we don't really do that anymore. And if we do, we're creating a new thing. It's like The Wiz versus. Wicked uh, versus Wizard of Oz, but not right. We didn't get to do a black Wizard of Oz. We didn't get to sing any of that music. And I was like, I would love us to get to actually sing this music. And unlike, like in Hello Dolly, they just sang the arrangements, the original ones. You know, Pearl Bailey might have changed the key from Carol Channing, but she didn't. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of jazz or a lot of black influence on the music because that's not what the music was written as. And I was like, I would be also curious to see 
what that music sounds like when we get to like really explore what it is for us as black performers approaching it you know the mm-hmm. most famous recording of the song hello dolly is louis armstrong's yeah it's not barbara streisand's or carol channing's and i was like what would it be like if louis armstrong was in charge of the music for hello dolly was what i was thinking about and so we did hello dolly in concert and my good friend kenny green is a performer and music director he's also a really fierce trumpet player and so mm. he came in and he was my horse vandegelder and um you know, Tara Connor Jones, who just won um, the Adelco Award as Best Actress in a Musical for um, White Girl in Danger. She was my uh, Dolly Levi. And I was like, let's see what this music sounds like. And it completely sold out. Mm. Completely sold out. And I was like, let's do, let's do another one. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Um, and then we did Hair. And uh, Hair is a show that I love and that has been there for me mm. throughout my career. Mm-hmm. It's the first show I did in when I came back to Richmond at Earlham College. So it was my first guest artist contract as a performer. It was my first union contract as a performer. When I came back to New York, I did it at the Media Theater in Pennsylvania as an actor. Um, it was my first national tour as a musical director. Um, and I was like, I would love to get to explore what this is like when it's all black folks singing this music, as opposed, because normally it's like a little sprinkling of black folks here and there. Yeah. And so we did that one, and it was a wild success. And I rearranged the music. I remember we sang Aquarius, and it was kind of in the style of En Vogue, <laughs> which, which is crazy, and it's so historically inappropriate. But like I was like, well, <laughs> we're just going to be singing the song, so we don't have to be specific to a period or like, we're just going to see what what this sounds like. And we're going to do Frank Mills, yeah. and it's kind of a doo-wop number now instead. Um, mm-hmm. And then another, a director approached me after that one, and she was like, I've had this idea of Legally Blonde in my head for years, set at a historically black college. And like, instead of it being at Harvard, that it's at, it's at Howard instead. And uh-huh. what would that sound like? And what will the music sound like? And it's the same period as the show. It's like the early 90s, late 90s, but it's going to be there instead. And I was like, oh my God, we have to do this. Mm-hmm. We have to. Um... And we did, and it was an insane amount of labor. Legally Blonde is, you know, Hello Dolly has like 14 songs in it. Legally Blonde has like 25. Oh, wow. It's it's just, it's a monster of a show. And I've done the show before, but to get to rearrange that music was really wild. And, um, you know, I had to do it basically in a week um, to put on this concert. And so the concert series um, was such a smash and people have been like after me like oh what are you going to be doing with that further and like right now we're looking at doing um a musical that was actually just off broadway in 2017 um bella an american tale um because mm-hmm. other organizations in new york have re- were reaching out like we would love for you to present one of these concerts here with us mm-hmm. and i was like oh i would love that so you know bella and american tale was at playwrights horizons and it's um, this really beautiful musical, this really insane musical set in the in the old west, um, by Kristen Childs, um, and so and we're going to be reuniting some of the original cast from that, but we're also part of what the Creating Color series was exciting for me about was that I always got to work with people I knew, but I also worked with new people every time, and we held auditions, which never happens 
in these kind of cabaret settings. Um, and especially because there's no money involved. Right. But I was like, what's useful to me is I want new people in the room. I want to meet new people, meet new singers. Um, one of the guys that was in my hair was fresh out of college. Um, he's now in How to Dance in Ohio on Broadway. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, I was like, I would never have met him. And he was one of the most spectacular. He walked in the room and I was like, it, it was insane, his mm. voice. It, I started crying when he was auditioning. And I was like, I don't, where have you been? Who are you? <laughs> like, yeah. it was like he was a space alien. His voice was so special. Um, and I was like, how does not, how does everyone not know about you? Yeah. Like they do now. Yeah. Yeah. So when, so Bella, an American tale, is that what it's called? Yes. And that's slated for 2024 with the, yes, with it the is. series? Oh, wonderful. Yes. wonderful. So I'm really excited. That's going to be an April, I believe. So, um, yeah, okay. we're finishing up the scheduling for that, but I'm really excited to... It's also the first time I'm going to get to work with the writer mm. of the show. Um, like, I had worked with the writers of Hair, because uh-huh. I've done I had done that previously, um, but I didn't work with them on my concert, on my reimagining of the piece. And so this time, a chance, like, I'll have a chance to actually work with Kristen and be like, what is your vision? What things were you never able to dream about with the show before? What things, you know, what things can I absolutely not do? Right. What can I touch? So when she's, <laughs> so she'll be like, yes, don't turn this into an En Vogue song, John. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that I'll be happy to take that note. But I'm also, I'll also encourage, you know, we'll encourage each other to like dream ridiculous things because we're not doing the show. We're just presenting the music. And so as a result, you can get away with doing some weird things sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for this conversation, for taking the time to join us on the show today. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you and to get to know your career. And I want to wish you and your family all the best. Well, thank you. I'm really excited just to, I'm always excited to talk about coming from Richmond, going back to Richmond and like the stuff that I do in between trips to Richmond. (laughs) That's all just exciting stuff that I love to talk about anyway. Wonderful. Well, thank you, John. Thank you. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to the Western Way News Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review our show as it helps more listeners like you to find these stories. For more information, visit our website at westernwaynews.com. I'm Kate Jetmore, and I'll see you next time.